I want to begin our time together with a question. Have you ever been expecting one thing and then got something totally different? Have you ever been expecting one thing but then got something totally different? You know, it was your birthday, and he hinted that he was going to give you that special gift, that unique special gift that you had wanted. You were building in anticipation, and then your birthday arrives, and you open the, the box, and inside the box is a gift card to Kirkland. It's a Kirkland gift card. <laughs> you were expecting one thing, but you got something totally different. Or maybe it was Valentine's Day this last Wednesday, and a loved one, a significant other, invited you out. They said they were going to take you somewhere very special, somewhere very unique, and you had envisioned in your mind a really nice restaurant in L.A. or something like that. And instead, they took you over to Old North Church, where you spent 45 minutes confessing your sin and then ended by having someone tell you that you're going to die and uh, come to Ash Wednesday next year. It actually is an awesome service. You should really come. But have you ever had that experience of expecting one thing and got something totally different? But has it ever been the experience that the unexpected actually was a surprising gift in your life? You know, that Kirkland gift card turned out to enable you to buy exactly what you wanted. That service at Old North was amazing and enriching in your own spiritual life. But have you ever been expecting one thing, got something totally different? Well, this morning we're going to look together at a group of men who come to Jesus expecting one thing, but they get something different than what they expected. And yet the unexpected for them was a surprising gift in their own lives. And we're going to look at this story in Mark chapter 2 as part of a larger series that we're in, looking together at the priorities of Jesus. And so what we said over the last couple of weeks is that we're seeking to discern from the gospel of Mark the values and the priorities of Jesus. We want to ask, what was Jesus on about in the world? And why are we doing that? so that we as a church can be about the things that Jesus is about in the world, and we can try to avoid those things that Jesus is actually not about in the world. And so we've been in this series looking for Mark's gospel at the priorities of Jesus. And this morning, in this story of this, these men who come to Jesus expecting one thing, getting something totally different, we get a window into one of the core values, one of the core priorities of Jesus. The story picks up in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles in front of you. You can reach down, grab one of those. And in those Bibles, it's on page 837, I believe. Am I right? Exactly, exactly what I just said. 1065. Just checking if you're listening. So where we pick up our story, it is a season of growing popularity for the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has been traveling throughout the region of Galilee. That's a little northern region up there. You can see the Sea of Galilee near these, in these seaside villages surrounding Capernaum. He's healing the sick. He's cleansing lepers. He's casting out demons. And the crowds are loving it, and they're following him wherever he goes. It seems like Jesus is just blowing up, and wherever he goes, a crowd of people come. And on this occasion, where we pick up our story, Jesus is teaching in a house, and the crowds show up. 
It says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So get the picture in your mind. Jesus is in a house, a rather small house in Capernaum, and crowds of people flood into the house. It's standing room only. You've got people hanging in through the windows. People are pouring out of the doors onto the streets, just trying to get a glimpse of this Jesus and hear some of his teaching. And while they're enraptured in his teaching, they come. Look what it says. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So you have these four friends, and they've heard about this Jesus. He's a miracle worker. They wonder, could he heal our friend? Could he, could he make our friend to walk? And so they pick up their friend on this mat, these four guys, and they carry him to get to Jesus. But when they get there, there's no room. They try the door, they can't get in there. They try a window, they can't get in there. And they're just deflated. They've been waiting for this, dreaming for this moment. They're deflated. They're about ready to turn around and go home, completely defeated. When one of them, I'm quite sure, has an idea. And he almost certainly was an engineer from JPL. And <laughs> he starts sizing up the house, and he's kind of doing his calculations. He looks up, and all of a sudden he gets this gleam in his eye. And he looks over at his four friends, and he's like, or his three friends, and he nods over to the roof. And he's smiling, and they're like, yeah, let's go. And so they take their friend up on top of the roof. And these homes, they typically had, they were, you know, built of cobblestone and mud. They typically had flat roofs that were two to three inches thick, made of straw and mud and some rocks and whatnot. And they were pretty sturdy structures. They would oftentimes sleep on their roofs. Sometimes they do work on their roofs. And so they go up on top of this roof, and these guys start digging into the roof, start peeling it back, you know, and opening up a hole. They're doing some serious uh, construction here. And this is a big deal. Now, what's happening down below in the house? Well, the crowds are in rapture because Jesus is teaching a Bible study. And they're listening to Jesus, and all of a sudden they hear this noise on the roof, and then a little hole starts to appear in the roof, and then dust starts to fill the room, and dirty fingers stick down and start pulling the roof back and back and back. And before you know it, there's sun pouring into the room and dust, and all of a sudden this man, as if descending from heaven, is lowered down, you know, with these janky ropes, you know, right before the crowds. And so here's Jesus, here's this man in front of him, the crowds around him, and in my mind's eye, the crowds are shocked. This is probably Simon and Andrew's house. They're horrified, they're wondering, how are we going to repair this roof? The religious leaders are thinking, this is so improper, how could they? But in my mind's eye, Jesus is smiling. I mean, Jesus loves this stuff. This is the kind of stuff Jesus just digs. You know, you read through the Gospels, and, you know, the apathetic, Jesus sends them away. 
But when somebody has to fight through a crowd or climb a tree or tear open a roof or interrupt a dinner party, Jesus just loves it. And look at what it says in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Now, what are his friends thinking at this moment? Hello, Jesus. Um, This guy, you know, look, Jesus, we've known this guy for a really long time. We know he can be a jerk. We know he's got sin. But we didn't bring him here because we wanted his sins forgiven. We brought him here so that you could make him walk. What is Jesus doing? It does seem a little bit inappropriate in this moment. Maybe Jesus was missing the social cues. You know, it looks like he's got a little low EQ problem here. He's not really tracking with what's happening. You know, son, your sins are forgiven. It just seems so out, off the, out, of, out of step with what's happening in this moment. What is Jesus doing in this moment? I want to suggest to you that what Jesus is doing is in this moment, he's number one, he's revealing to us the true nature of our most deep problems. You see, our main issue, our key problems, are not so much physical as they are spiritual. And Jesus is far more interested in us experiencing spiritual healing and renewal than he is dealing with our physical problems. Now, When I was writing my notes this week and I wrote down this line that what Jesus is doing is Jesus is more concerned with the spiritual than the physical, I was a little bit disgusted with myself that I wrote that line down because that's just the kind of what I feel like is a cheap Christian cliche that I don't like. Because sometimes what people can do is they can take this idea, Jesus is more concerned with the spiritual than the physical, and they can use that as a justification for continuing in lives of conspicuous consumerism while they neglect the needs of the poor. They can actually neglect investing in real physical health and food and medical care for people. We can actually use this to justify all kinds of stupid things and stupid ideas that are so against the way of Jesus. And of course, that's a misuse of that idea. Jesus, yes, I am saying in this text, Jesus is more concerned with the spiritual than the physical, but Jesus cares deeply about physical problems. Jesus cares deeply about people who cannot walk. Jesus cares deeply about cancer and about fibromyalgia and lupus. Jesus cares deeply about your anxieties and your depressions and all the stuff that kind of rack your life and make you feel personally kind of paralyzed. Jesus cares deeply about these things, but what he is revealing to us in this moment is that there is deeper issues at work in our life that we need to attend to and that he himself came to attend to. And for this man, more significant than physical healing was spiritual healing. More significant than being enabled to walk was to have his sins forgiven. Now, I can imagine this man objecting to this. You know, I I can imagine, you know, this man probably thought for many years in his life, if only I could walk, then I'd be happy. If only, Jesus, if I could just walk, then I'd be happy. But most of you can walk. Are you happy? 
there are deeper issues at work in our life and what is, is the root of our problem that results in the fruit of so many issues in our life is sin. It's a broken, marred relationship with God. And this is what Jesus came preeminently, first and foremost, to deal with, is our broken relationship with God. It is our sin. Now, if you're investigating Christianity and uh, you're, you're thinking about it, you're like, wait a second, you know, this is the problem I have with Christianity, is that Christians are just so on about sin. I mean, it seems like they're always talking about sin. They're always beating themselves over sin. I look at your songs, you know, you're always singing about the blood washing our sin and, you know, God's anger against sin and all this stuff. And you think, what's up with sin? And if you went to our Ash Wednesday service, you must have really been thinking that question because we really go in deep, you know. You're kind of confessing sin all the time, the entire service. But you have to understand a couple things about sin. Number one, when the Bible speaks about sin, it speaks about acts, and a specific kind of act that one philosopher-theologian described as the culpable disturbance of shalom. Sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. Now you say, well, unpack that a little bit for me. Thank you, I will. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Culpable, what are we talking about there? We're talking about responsibility. Now, of course, you all are complicated, and, and you're, you're complex creatures, you're conflicted, and there's a whole lot of stuff that goes into making you who you are, and there's aspects of your own junk that you're actually not responsible for, somebody else is, because you've been a victim, and you've been abused, and you're acting out of your own you know, negative past, and your dysfunctional family, and all of this stuff, And yet, in spite of all of that, the Bible says that we are not just cases, we're not just scientific objects to be studied, we're not an endless succession of cause and effect that ultimately winded up in this blob that is, you know, this kind of, uh, where we're just determined to do all the things we do. No, we are human beings, which means we've been created in the image of God. We have dignity and worth, and part of the dignity and worth of humanity is that we are responsible for our actions. And we can be both praised for things that are done good, and we can be blamed for things that we do wrong. And so when the Bible speaks about sin, it's primarily speaking about actions for which we are responsible that then disturb shalom. What is shalom? Well, shalom is an old Jewish word that refers to the wholeness that God wills for his creation. God longs for the world to be full of wholeness for your relationships, for for husbands and wives to sacrificially love and invest in one another, for mothers and fathers to care well for their kids, for kids to honor and submit to and and work together as a family with their their parents, and, and for us to reach out and to care for our neighbors and to take our resources and generously pour them out to care for the needs of the poor and the hurting and the hungry in our world. And when that is happening, when there is justice and there is love and there is care, flooding into the world out of our lives, the word that the Bible uses to describe that state of being is shalom. It's wholeness. And what is sin? It is the responsible actions that you do that disturb the shalom that God wills for his world. Anybody in the house ever responsible for disturbing the shalom of your own home? Of your neighborhood? On the freeway? 
at work, at school, among your brothers and sisters, you know? I mean, this is something, we, we disturb shalom all the time. So sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom, but sin is not only an act according to the Bible, sin is also a power. And here's the ironic thing, and it's strange, but it's true, and you know it, all of us know it by experience. We oftentimes begin by committing actions, but before we know it, we become overpowered in our sin. And our sin actually starts to control us. And, you know, the reason why my daughter Lucy's comment is so funny, you know, that she's going to stop sinning, is none of us can. Have you ever stopped to think why? It's because sin is a power that enslaves us. And when the Bible speaks about forgiveness, that word forgiveness actually means to be released from sin. It means to be released from the guilt and shame of sin, and it also means to be released from the power of sin. And so what our text is revealing to us is that Jesus came into the world to deal with the deep sin problem in humanity so that we might be released from sin's power and from the guilt and the shame that sin brings into our life. And so I think what Jesus is showing, this man gets set before him, everyone wants him to be healed, but Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is saying, look, there's a deeper problem than your paralysis. It's your sin. But I think something else is happening in this story. You know, it's interesting, as you uh, read on in the story, you know, you just kind of wonder, what was this man thinking when he heard this word? Certainly his friends were a little bit surprised, but I wonder if you could get a window into the heart of this paralytic. I wonder if he brought into that home more than everyone else knew. And if he actually, maybe in his own heart and life, the word he needed to hear most was forgiven, released. For some of you, that's the most important word you need to hear this morning. You came in here, and nobody else knows what's going on in your life, but I want you to know that in Jesus Christ, there is freedom and forgiveness. And Jesus speaks that gracious, merciful word over your life. You are forgiven. But we don't know what this guy was thinking, but we do get a window into somebody else's heart on that day. Look at what it says in the text. It says, now when some of the scribes were sitting there, they were questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I love this. These religious leaders are doing what a lot of religious toxic people do sometimes, is they're acting totally passive aggressive. They're grumbling and complaining about what's happening in the room in their hearts and then kind of among themselves. And although it seems like nobody else can see what's going on in their hearts, Jesus sees. And this day is full of shocks. You know, there was the shock of the crowds. There was the shock of the friends. There's the shock of Peter and Andrew as their house is being torn open. And here now, the religious leaders are shocked because Jesus turns to them and he says, why are you reasoning like this in your hearts? He exposes them. But why was it that they had such a problem with Jesus speaking this word of forgiveness? I mean, isn't it a good thing for someone to say, son, your sins are forgiven? Why would they complain about that? Listen, within ancient Israel, sins could be forgiven. They did believe that people's sins could be forgiven, although sins could only be forgiven if they were taken care of at the proper place. 
And the place on earth where sins would be dealt with is here. It was the temple in Jerusalem. And if what you would need to do is you'd have to bring a sacrifice and you'd have to take it to the temple and you'd present it to the priest so that he could offer up the sacrifice on your behalf so that your sins could be atoned for in this place where God would deal with sins. This was a place on earth where God dealt with sins. And then this phrase that Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. The kind of pronouncement over his both intentional and unintentional sins where forgiveness is spoken that Jesus gives here, this kind of word would only be spoken once a year in Israel. And it would be in Jerusalem on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. And what would happen on the Day of Atonement? Well, on the Day of Atonement, the priests would get all dressed up in their fancy outfits with their linen garments, and they would wash themselves so that they would be ritually pure. And then the priests would offer a ram and a goat on their behalf and on the behalf of their family so that their own sins could be atoned for. And then what they would do is they would go into the holy place after slaughtering two goats. They'd go right into the holy place. Oh, you're like, oh, it's so cute. You have to <laughs> slaughter that poor thing. But what they would do is they would first slaughter one goat, and the blood of that goat would atone for the sins of Israel. And then the priest would speak, he would lay his hands on the head of the other goat on the Day of Atonement, and he would confess over that goat all of the sins of Israel. And then after the proper sacrifice had been made, after the proper rituals had been followed, after it had been done by the appointed prescribed person in the prescribed way with the prescribed outfits, in the prescribed place, the temple, then and only then the goat would be released and it would symbolize the people's sins being released. People's sins could be released, but it was only on this day, in this place, by these people. And so do you see what Jesus is doing in this moment? Jesus is saying, up here in Galilee, far from Jerusalem down south, up here in Galilee, in this little dirty, dusty home, I have the authority to forgive sins. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the end of all priests and all sacrifice and all temples. I am the end of everything you need to do and perform in order to receive forgiveness from God. And Jesus is saying, I in my own self have authority on earth to release you of your sins if you will come to me. Or put it like this, in Jesus Christ, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God comes freely to all who will reach out with empty hands, confessing their need, and receive it. That's good news, isn't it? Now, the scribes didn't think so. It's immediately Jesus, perceiving in their spirit that they had thus questions, said to them, he said, why do you question these things in your hearts? And then he says this, which is easier to say the, to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed, and walk? 
Now let me ask you, this is a riddle. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Which is it, class? Ah, there's some difference of opinion in the crowd. It's a riddle, and it's intentionally so. It's, you know, it's caused you to ask the question, which is easier? Well, on the one hand, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than rise, take up your bed and walk, because no one can tell whether or not the sins were forgiven, where it's a real clear test case whether or not it worked when you said arise, take up your bed and walk, right? Yes. But on the other hand, what's easier? Helping one lame man walk or dealing with all of the violence and the hatred, all of the failures to love that has characterized human life since the beginning. It's difficult. He can do both. You're right. That's a good point. But it's way easier to make someone walk than to deal with all of the sins of the world. And what Jesus is saying in this moment, it is he has the authority to deal with all of the sins of the world because Jesus Christ came into the world so that he might be the final sacrifice of love to end all sacrifices. He would give himself in glad, self-giving love, bearing in his own body our brokenness and our shame and our guilt, hanging on the cross, bringing it to a final and a complete end so that all who trust in Jesus can be released forever. Now let's just stand back as we look at this story. What is the priority of Jesus in our text? And how should that inform us? Of course, what Jesus is about in the world is dealing with our broken relationship with God. It's dealing with our shame and our guilt and our enslavement to sin. Jesus came into the world for this purpose, to create a community of people that receive and enjoy and embody his forgiveness in the world. There is no other religious system on the face of the planet that has such a robust and such a beautiful picture of the mercy and the grace and the love of God as is revealed in Jesus Christ. If that's true, then why is it that so often what Christians are most known for is judgmental, critical attitudes? Why, why is it that this church actually, if you talk to people who have left this church over the years, I've been told that there are stories of people who have been deeply wounded in this, in this place. Of course, that's just not true up here. It's true of a lot of churches, right? And could it be that maybe we haven't opened ourselves up yet enough to the mercy and the forgiveness of God in our own hearts and lives. Maybe we haven't quite reckoned enough with the reality of our own brokenness, of our own deep need for grace. Because people who do, and people who open themselves up to the love and the grace and the mercy of God become a conduit and an agent of God's mercy and his love and his grace and his forgiveness into the world. And so the invitation for us this morning in this text is to see ourselves like this paralytic, 
lying down, paralyzed by whatever junk you brought in here today. And hearing the good word of Jesus, you are forgiven.